Hello and welcome to a new episode of Conversations on Consent. I'm your host, Elisa Yanacone, and today we have an incredible guest, Jackson Katz. Welcome, Jackson. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, Elisa. It's good to be with you. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to let our audiences know that this episode might contain some triggering content. So if you do feel that you have the need for support, please do visit our website or follow us on Instagram at Conversations on Consent to access resources and support. This 10th episode is a very special one that's close to our heart because you'll be able to hear the voices of our fantastic team members from five different continents. They could not all be in the call with Jackson and I, but will be part of the conversation on consent and solidarity through their reflections, making it a truly global conversation on consent. Do listen until the end of the episode to hear where they're from and what consent means to each one. Before we start the episode, let's dive in to hear some highlights. If there was universal behavior that supported consent and consensual behavior was somehow universal, then we wouldn't have all the problems that we have. And I know that there's some people who transgress even knowing the lines, and that's another issue. But there are some people who don't even know the lines. And some and some of the work I think that has to happen when it comes to education is to talk about what are the social norms in our societies that contribute to large numbers of people, especially men, crossing lines and not even realizing that they're crossing those lines. With the bystander approach, means when it's applied to say sexual violence prevention or relationship abuse prevention or harass sexual harassment prevention is the idea is to focus on everybody around the person doing it and everybody around the person experiencing it and ask how can everybody in a given peer culture small or large challenge or interrupt the abusive behavior we have a lot more work to do in terms of going getting men engaged those of us who are you know, thoughtful about this need to, and, and who happen to be men or embodied males, if you will, or men in our identification or our, you know, who we are or see ourselves, we have an incredibly important role to play in helping to expand cultural ideologies and beliefs about manhood that are less destructive than the old ways. Now, Jackson, just to begin with, before we get started, I just wanted to know, why do you think it's important for us to have conversations on consent? Well, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about the realm of, of sexual violence and sexual harassment and other forms of abusive behavior, I mean, consent is a is a fundamental principle that, that needs to apply in relations between people. And um and if we had uh if, if there was universal um support and behavior that supported uh, consent and consensual behavior was um, was somehow universal, um, then we wouldn't have all the problems that we have. Um, that's one way. To, that's one way to frame it. And in the sexual assault context, it's more. It's very explicit what the lack of consent means. It means sexual assault. It means sexual violence. It means rape. Um, and so, you know, part of the part of education around this these matters, and it's bigger than education. But part of the education around these matters is helping people, especially men, not exclusively men, but especially men, understand um, what are the shared values and about of consent. And this is globally, and you know, di different societies have might might have lines drawn slightly differently. But this is these are universal and global um, in challenges defining consent. Um, but but basically, it comes down to if men 
were fully on board with the idea that there was no such thing as forward motion sexually unless there was consent, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have. And, we, and it would be understood that when, when people cross lines, in other words, don't or proceed with sexual uh, behavior or aggressive behavior or some kind of you know, forward motion without con- the consent of other individuals involved, that that's a problem to say the least. It's both a legal problem and a, and a moral problem. Um, and, and I know that there's some people who transgress even knowing the lines, and that's another issue, but there are some people who don't even know the lines and some, and some of the work I think that has to happen when it comes to education is to, is to talk about what are the social norms in our societies that contribute to large numbers of people, especially men, crossing lines and not even realizing that they're crossing those lines. Mm-hmm. And, and that has to do with, uh, you know, social norms and cultural practices and stuff like that, which is very much um, a subject of and needs to be addressed through education, through activism, through consciousness raising and other forms of, of intervention, not just legal and, 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 and um, criminal. Jackson starts out very strong on making clear that consent is a universal and global issue and needs to be addressed through solidarity which is the topic of this podcast episode. There are various ways of achieving a consent-based culture, such as education and activism. But one thing remains clear. If consent is poorly understood and not a standard of living together as a society, abuse and violence are not just tolerated, but normalized. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot is how we define consent because you know there's many laws written about how consent has to be given and it's used a lot in conversation but the word itself how would you define consent well again are we talking about specifically the sexual context well because if you want to talk general like in democracy the 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 people who are authorized to make decisions on behalf of the populace are acting with the consent of the population, if you will. So there's a there's a there's an established relationship between, for example, the citizens of a democracy and the elected representatives of that democracy. So the the the, 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 the citizens are consenting to have those representatives represent their interests, and they can withdraw that consent if they or they can replace those representatives if they feel like it's not um, you know not working for them. Defining consent is one of the main aims that we have in this podcast series, Conversations on Consent. Jackson makes an important statement of mutuality and the respect of boundaries. What he also highlights is the multidimensional nature of consent. We highlight three levels in each podcast episode, the personal, the interpersonal, and the societal dimension. This is important because they are all interlinked. If you do not understand consent on the personal level, how can we practice true democracy on a societal level? Democracy is a concept that is not just about elections. Democracy also describes a way of treating every member of society with dignity, respect and empathy. Consent has many different dimensions in the in the interpersonal realm, and especially when it comes to violence or sexual violence. Um, explicitly, it means that the person, you know, anybody who's engaged in a reciprocal act of any kind, has to be fully on board and supportive of that act or those acts. 
and they can withdraw that support or consent at any point. And if they um, if they make clear that they are not consenting to certain kinds of uh, behaviors, interactions, or what have you, then it becomes a matter of violation. Because if 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 if, if the person, if a person who's involved in it, for example, a sexual uh, encounter of some kind, is not consenting, by definition, it's a criminal act. It's actually. It's also abusive. It's morally indefensible, but it's also criminal because you're transgressing the boundaries that someone has set. And absent consent, there's no um, there's no agreement any longer. And consent is a subset of those larger, um, you know, uh, concepts and, and aspirations. So how is it that you landed in this realm? <laughs> what's what's your story? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, there has to be a brief version of it because like with yes, everybody, Alisa, the Cliff's Notes version, <laughs> the Cliff Notes version is more realistic. Yes. Yes. Let's put it this way. Starting when I was a young man um, in the university um, back in the day, um, 18, 19 years old, I was sort of downloading both in the classroom and outside the classroom, just an enormous amount of information and understanding about how the world works. And, and um, um, I saw very early on, when I say early on, 18, 19, maybe, I, maybe it could have been earlier, but um, just how big a problem gender inequality was and men's violence against women as a subset of gender inequality. And I saw it very quickly as like, this is one of the major problems in human civilization. It wasn't just one of many problems. It was, it was centrally uh, marbled into every other system of injustice and inequality in the world. And, um, and I got that pretty early on as a young guy. And I also got that there were very few men who were engaging in with this. I knew it was clear that there were women, you know, in, in a multiracial, multi-ethnic sense, both in the United States, where I'm from, but also all over the world, women who had been engaging in struggle and feminist, uh, you know, revolution and transformation and cultural agitation and everything else. And I, I could see that they were onto something hugely important. And again, not just for women, but for men as well in a very positive way and not just men and women because beyond the binary everybody's in, you know implicated and involved in a sense and um and I thought where are the men why aren't there more men involved why can't men see what these women are clearly seeing and I, and I realized that I was in a position as a young man to you know to be one of those men who was you know standing up and speaking out and I I was really confident as a young guy both intellectually and and personally and I was like what I'm going to start doing it. And then as a young heterosexual guy, I was also, again, somewhat limited and ignorant in my experience and knowledge about, you know, heteronormativity and the LGBTQ spectrum. And I remember as a, again, university student learning about, you know, the, the, what we used to call the gay rights movement and um, the LGBT challenges to heteronormative sort of power. And all of this was happening literally at the same time. And I was figuring out, oh my God, there's all kinds of overlaps and intersections. And so from that moment on, I've been an activist, you know, both in my personal and professional and, and activist life. And the, the thing that, that's a little frustrating for me is that men who are self-identified as progressive, that somehow they care about justice and fairness and human rights and democracy, don't see that so obviously that they're participating on the side of power against fairness and justice when it comes to sexism. Some of those men probably see themselves as, you know, caring about 
justice and social justice and human rights, but then they see you talking about, you know, women's rights and sexism and they're like, why are you being so aggressive? Why are you trying to challenge me? I'm not, you know, it lacks the most fundamental self-awareness to, to, for, from my point of view, for them to say that. And, and I think, I think one, one of the things that I've been doing for, I don't know, a long time, uh, one of the ways that I frame some of what I do in my work is I state the obvious <laughs> and people, and people are often like, wow, that's amazing. And I'm like, I just said the most basic thing. It's like, it's like, it's, it's not, it, it shouldn't be obvious. I mean, it, sh- it should be obvious, but because I'm a man saying it, they think it's, oh my God. I mean, by the way, fe- to me, feminism, you can't believe in democracy and not be a feminist unless you don't understand either democracy or feminism. It's like, how can you reconcile believing in democracy if you're not a feminist? Democracy is a governance system of equal participation. If we were to master the establishment of a culture based on consent, then surely we could even explore more inclusive systems of governance taking into account spaces for any type of injustice and straightening human rights globally. We would like to believe so. Please join the Consent Revolution by signing our petition and talking about concern in your community. One of the ways that power is embedded in this, the download, you know, the software is downloaded early that doesn't allow you to see certain things. And some people are in the face of being told or shared with or, you know, information that, contra- that is contrary to what they sort of think the world, how the world works. Some can be really defensive about it. No, I didn't mean that. Or no, you're, you're, you know, or they can be open to it. Of like, wow, I didn't really think about it like that. That is really interesting. And I'm going to think about it. You know, I think some of this has to do with their own personality structure. And I think when we cut, when it comes to education, I mean, I, we know this from, you know, decades and decades of uh, not my research, but, you know, people who do educational research, the themes have to be introduced r- routinely and repeatedly. It's like, there are some things that'll come to you in an aha moment. Like, like for example, the, the whole passive voice thing with, with language, like when you start, and again, I'm an English speaker and this is much, you know, this is definitely in English. Other languages have their own issues relating mm-hmm. to this. But, you know, when we say how many women were, were raped rather than how many men raped women, or the term violence against women is a problematic term because there's no active agent in the sentence. It's a bad thing that happens to women, violence against them, but nobody's doing it to them because there's no active agent in the sentence. So when you, when you, some people, including men, when they hear this for the first time, it's like, oh my God. So there is this aha moment, like, oh my God, that's correct. This passive language has a very powerful political effect. And, it, you know, here we are decades later and the issues of gender inequality and which are directly, as I've said, related to all those other forms of inequality are still front and center in the world. Um, yeah. And we have a long way to go. And, and we have a lot more work to do in terms of changing systems and practices and cultural beliefs. And, and we have a long way to go in getting men engaged. We've yeah. made a lot of progress. I think women have made a lot of progress in getting out there and social media and the technologies of communication have allowed a level of voice and activism for women and young women in particular that are historically, you know, completely unprecedented. And it's great. Um, but I think we have a real gap in the, num- the number of men who are willing to commit, you know, both time and energy and resources and activist um, energy to the really, really urgent cause of gender justice. And, um, and there's more men involved today than there was by orders of magnitude when I started, but it's still only a drop in the bucket compared to the level of the problem. 
Yeah. And I go back to one of the quotes that you've used in your talks previously from Martin Luther King being, you know, we'll remember the words of our, uh, we won't, we will be remembering not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And that leads me to talking about the whole concept. I think what you were alluding to is almost the bystander effect, right? Which is something you've discussed a lot. And this concept of, Yes, there are many people who are activists and fighting to keep the ball rolling like me too. I don't know about you, but I've gone from hashtag me too to hashtag me tired. And, <laughs> and, and sometimes it feels like we're going in reverse with recent news with Bill Cosby, then Britney Spears, all this stuff. And you just go, man, are we even getting anywhere? Right. And, and so I'd love to get some of your insight on how you feel that the bystander effect has evolved in the time that you've been doing this work. And do you think we're gaining any kind of momentum? Are people getting more involved or are we becoming more jaded and therefore taking a back step? No, I appreciate, I appreciate your, you know, frustration. It sounds like, as well as some hope that I can see still resides in your, in your psyche, <laughs> your soul. You got to retain hope. I mean, I mean, I, th th this is how I feel. And I felt this way for a long time. I mean, I think everybody who's involved in, you know, is sort of challenging really old and entrenched systems of injustice and inequality. You have to be in it for the long haul. Social change takes time and requires the combined effort of legal advances, education and activism. Johanna Nellis, who heads the Division on Violence Against Women in the Council of Europe, was interviewed by our team for the 10-year anniversary of the Istanbul Convention Against Violence Against Women, and she echoed similar sentiments on social change taking time. There is a reward when we keep pushing for such change to happen because we do see outcomes and these outcomes are what we want to highlight with the conversations on consent campaign. We highly recommend you to check into episode one for more input on the dynamics of social change. Change doesn't happen, you know, as quickly as you want it to happen. And by the way, I know I, I talk with with young activists all the time and, and older activists, you know, you know, about these various issues and how do you retain optimism and how do you retain your commitment? And, you know, we all have to know that we're just part of it, you know, a human sort of you know, story that's that's centuries long and and undoing the, the structures of power and domination that, you know, like patriarchal structures. It's not a one generation or two generation, you know, business. And by the way, change has come. I mean, there's been, in fact, if you look at the last half century, it's just extraordinary what women in particular have been able to accomplish. I mean, again, it's variable around the world. I mean, there's different societies have different paces of change. And some of us can look at other societies and say, oh, my God. Some of us can look at our own societies and say, oh, my God, are we still doing this? This is still a problem. And, and, and I, I appreciate that but if you take an objective look at what has changed it's just extraordinary that for example in, in in countries like mine united states and again i'm not saying this is representative but you know the domestic and sexual violence movements have made such enormous progress in 50 years like the, the services for victims and survivors the offender accountability the changes in the laws the the the, the embedding of prevention You know, programming, it's nowhere near enough, but in schools and in educational institutions and there's some of the social norms that have uh, that have been changing. It's pretty impressive. And it, even though a lot of women and young women will say, oh, my God, things are 
you know, things haven't changed. Everything, you know, is still the same. It's still, there's still sexual violence is everywhere. And, and again, I'm not denying that it's still a huge problem, but we also have to take a step back and ask, come on, have you really looked at the history here? I mean, I just finished reading Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape by Susan Braunmiller, which is like one of the classic books in the last, you know, two centuries. I mean, it's unbelievably important. She's a journalist in the mid-70s writing about the history of rape. And it was like groundbreaking, so groundbreaking, because what she was doing was cataloging. You know, it wasn't filled with theory, although there was theoretical implications of her of her research, but it was like filled with stories of you know, Western civilization, you know, from from the ancient times all the way through the modern, you know, into the 60s and 70s about how deeply rooted rape and the denial of rape and the, you know, the, the, the shutting down of women's voices and the, the male narrators not even caring in, in, in both in fiction and in reality, not even caring about what happens to women, minimizing rape as an issue. And this is even on, on the left among progressive men, among men who are social justice heroes in other respects, like decolonizing heroes and, and anti-racist, you know, activists, anti-war, you know, leaders who were incredibly sexist and incredibly demeaning to women. And that was in the 60s and 70s. That wasn't the ancient times. Jackson speaks about such an important point here, the monster myth. We are made to believe by popular culture that rapists are monsters, but this is not true. Rapists are very often classical nice guys or successful guys. Most men who abuse their power are in the public spotlight, as Jackson says. Even with do-good projects such as making documentaries on human rights and democracy, leaders in activism for social change, or holding powerful positions in respected organizations or companies, they work even in sectors you would least likely to believe such a thing to happen, such as the development sector or in faith-based organizations. This myth needs to be busted, and a reflective process of men who think that they are good guys really needs to be kick-started. We are pushing this campaign for these reflective conversations to happen. We have made a lot of progress. So I, I know that's a long, kind of long-winded answer, but- I like I, it. Yeah, thank you. But it's, it's, we have made a lot of progress. We have a long way to go. And I think the bystander stuff to get specific to that that you referenced, there's a lot to the bystander approach. And I don't, the bystander effect, I just want to make this uh, distinction because a lot of people who are new to this uh, language um, often conflate different concepts. So the bystander effect is a social psychological term that refers to why people don't act when they see things happening, typically in public, when they're a member of a group or a crowd because there's a de-individuation process where they feel like I'm one of a group. I don't have to act because somebody else is going to act. Or there, you know, there are all kinds of other you know, things going on in somebody's head in those situations. But what, what, I, what I refer to as the bystander approach, which is a, an approach to gender violence and bullying prevention, it's not about strangers on the streets in crowds, not reacting when they see something happening. It's about why people in individual friendships, in peer cultures, in families, in schools and teams and workplaces, what are the dynamics going on in peer cultures when something happens between people 
people do or don't act? What is going on? And 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 in particular, what, what the bystander approach means when it's applied to, say, sexual violence prevention or relationship abuse prevention or harass, sexual harassment prevention is it, it's move, it, it, the attempt is to move beyond the perpetrator-victim binary. And instead of focusing on the person doing it and the person experiencing it, the idea is to focus on everybody around the person doing it and everybody around the person experiencing it and ask, how can everybody in a given peer culture, small or large, challenge or interrupt the abusive behavior, make it clear to the person, for example, a man, young men, how can they make it clear to a man who's their friend, who's their, you know, buddy, you know, who's their workmate, that that the way he's talking about or or treating uh, girls and women is not acceptable, not because he's going to get in trouble with the authority figures, but because the peer culture itself is going to make it clear that they're not okay with that. And they're going to make it clear to to him that if he continues to act like this, he will be transgressing against the values of the group and that, and that he will have problems maintaining his position in the group if he's going to act like that. That's very different than saying, you know, he's going to get in trouble with the police, you know? Yeah. Peer culture refers to the relationships closest to us, not strangers or people we see on TV like celebrities. Here we speak about our friends, colleagues, and family. Our peer groups are where real and sustainable change happens. And yet this is also where conversations on consent are the hardest. The bystander approach is a concept that highlights this important layer of making a change right in front of your doorstep. Where something is at stake. Where conflict might be difficult but where we can also really have an impact towards fostering an air of solidarity and fostering a consent-based culture. Plainly said, it is peer culture that keeps violations of consent alive. What we love about this view is that it goes beyond the perpetrator-victim binary and gets everyone involved to take a stand towards what is acceptable in our communities. It encourages, especially men, to take this important step and enter the conversation on gender justice. And it's, it's also getting people around the person who's the target of abuse or harassment or violence to make it clear to, that everybody around that person, make it clear to that person that they support them, that they don't like what's happening and they want to know what can they do to help. Yeah. The beauty of that approach, especially working with men in the sexual assault and relationship abuse prevention space, is that most men, even to this day, will say about these issues, these are important issues, but they're not my issues. I don't rape women. I don't harass women. I don't abuse my girlfriend. Therefore, this isn't my problem. So you need to be talking to those guys who are doing it, not me. I'm a good guy. And the vast majority of men will say this, right? And my argument is, number one, we need to raise the bar a little higher for what it means to be a good guy in the 21st century. And just saying I'm not a rapist is not particularly impressive to me. But we also need to say, look, if you yourself aren't abusing women in some fashion, But you're remaining silent when guys around you are. And by the way, not just who are physically or sexually assaulting someone right in front of you. I'm saying if you carry yourself and conduct yourself in a way that you don't challenge and interrupt sexism and men's entitlement to women's bodies and and the way in which some men enact sexism, if you don't make it clear that you're not cool with that, both as an individual or as a member of an organization or an institution, then in a sense, your silence is a form of complicity. Complicity. Now we enter an important realm when it comes to conversations on consent. 
When we remain a bystander while observing others being violated, the crossing of boundaries and entitlement to other people's sexual autonomy through rape, marital rape, date rape, deceptive rape, etc., then we are part of the problem. Just saying I'm a nice guy because I personally do not rape is no accomplishment at all, especially when men enable their peer group to dominate through sexual intimidation, violence and rape. Introspection, especially for men, can help with that to answer the important question how do I contribute through my actions or through my silence to the perpetration of violence against women? Just saying I'm a nice guy because I personally do not rape is no accomplishment at all, especially when men enable their peer group with their silence to continue to dominate through sexual intimidation, violence and rape. Introspection, especially for men, can help with that to answer the important question, how do I contribute through my actions or through my silence to the perpetuation of violence against women? It's very, very directly analogous to racism. So if you're, as a white person, for example, you don't act in racist ways individually or as a member of an institution, but you don't say or do anything about racism. You don't make it use whatever privilege or advantage you have to speak out as a white person against racism individually or institutionally. Then in a sense, your silence or your inaction is a form of consent and complicity in racism. And you can't really um, get out of that. If you're a sophisticated thinker, thinking about your ethical responsibilities to yourself and to others, you can't really opt out of saying, oh, uh, you know, racism is not my, really my problem. Sexism is not really my problem. This is really shallow thinking. And I think part of the educational process is helping people think through their ethical obligations to being, and what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a good member of the, of the group, the community, the family, the, 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 uh, the society? And, and especially, again, especially for men, I think we need men to, to have the courage to be introspective and say, you know, how am I contributing either through my actions or my silence to the perpetuation of this ongoing pandemic of men's violence against women and how can i how can i if i'm participating through my silence how can i break that silence how can i be supportive how can i work with women and support them how can i work with other men or people outside the binary to you know to make it clear within my sphere of influence because not everybody's going to become an activist but within my sphere of influence to make it clear that those kinds of behaviors people crossing those lines or being abusive or mistreating others is just not acceptable and how can I do that safely and smartly, but how, how can I do it effectively? This makes me think of um, that title of one of your chapters in The Macho Paradox, which is, uh, it takes a village to rape a woman. And it's it's all the steps. It's not that sometimes, you know, you just wake up and a rape has happened. Is There are so many societal steps. There's enabling, there's the bystander effect. There's so many things that actually lead to a rape actually taking place. And I just thought the way that you phrased that and everything you've been saying right now, it's just giving us that perspective. And one of the things that I think would be very interesting to hear about is you make a strong stance for the relevance and importance of male solidarity and not making this a woman's issue, but making this, you know, an all gender issue. 
Um, what would you say are the most important roles that men can take in supporting the causes? Um, and, and how can they do that? Because, you know, standing up to your friends takes not just courage, but it can take you getting ostracized, uh, getting bullied, getting excluded, which is even worse, getting shamed. So how can one actually do that? And, and you know, knowing the consequences Well, that's a really important question, Elisa. Um, I think, number one, we have to take it out of the individual. Individuals have an important role to play, but we can't think about this solely as an individual problem, that an individual boy or young man or man needs to stand against you know, the masses and, and take all the hits. I think that's why it has to be understood as a as an imperative institutionally and politically and educational systems so that individual boys and men don't feel completely on their own. And, 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 and what I would say to that is, is that the changes that have to happen have to happen at a much higher level of, you know, social, uh, economic and political uh, power and influence. And, and so for example, in a given school, just like, just like, let's talk about a school situation. If the school buys into the idea that everybody in that school from the, the staff, the, the faculty, the, the administrators, as well as the students, everybody has got to buy into this idea that we all, you know, in an extended family, we treat each other with respect and dignity. When people don't treat each other with respect and dignity, they're out of step with the values of the, of the, of the school and the organization. And there are going to be consequences for that, not just legal or, or formal consequences, but, you know, social consequences. You can't do this. This is not be, being a responsible member of the group. But if you, if, if that's embedded in the school and you have training and education around sexual consent and, and relationship abuse prevention and sexual harassment organically, not just when there's an incident or some incidents that, that get this, the public spotlight, but if, it built, if it's built organically into, this is what it means to be an educated person in the 21st century and a thoughtful member of the community and the society, it's got to be built in. Then when individuals act, find themselves in situations like individual young men, they'll know that what they're acting on is not just their own personal belief, but they're acting on a shared value system. And the person who speaks up will be seen not as the, the soft one or the snitch or the, the politically correct virtue signaler and all this kind of negative stuff, but they'll be seen as a leader. They'll be seen as someone who has the guts to say the right thing. There's a person of integrity who has the courage and strength to say, you know what, this is wrong, guys. You know, you can't do this. And if you frame it that way, positively and aspirationally, both for young men and older men, it's not just young men. I think a lot of men will start hearing it in a different way, because I think a lot of men here and young men hear the conversation about sexual assault and Me Too and everything else. They hear it as a, you better watch yourself. You better stop doing this because, you know, you're going to get in trouble now because we're not going to put up with this any longer. Now, and I appreciate on one level that, that there is an element of that. Okay, and, and I think some of it's appropriate. We need to change the conversation on consent, it seems. Beyond framing sexual violence as something whereby we are asking men to get a grip and watch themselves, to bring this conversation towards something aspirational. An ethical responsibility that men have towards the whole community. What is needed is a change in the old narrative going beyond the individual level. Consent must instead become a communal effort involving the groups and leadership efforts toward 
making men support the way in the which the community function. Consent needs to become the status quo in conversations with peers and their community, making them the heroes of the story and not the wimps. If you go in with the attitude of telling people what not to do, rather than challenging them to rise to the better angels of their nature, in other words, you know, aspirationally and positively, and you talk about their ethical obligations and responsibilities to each other and to themselves, then you're, you, it, the conversation changes very quickly. And, and when I say obligations to themselves and others, what I mean by obligation to oneself, which I think is a really important concept, is if you're a person who says, I don't believe in violence, I don't believe in abuse, I believe that people should be treated with respect and dignity, um, and I believe that people should speak up when they see people being treated with disrespect, you know. Okay, I'm stating that that's who I am and what I believe. But now I'm in a situation where I have to put up or shut up. In other words, I, I've said that I believe this. And now my friend is texting his girlfriend constantly trying to find out where she is, who she's with, what she's wearing in a way that I can see is controlling. It's like not this is crossing a line here. I know he's in love with her, but this is not love. This is like jealousy and, and, and control. And, and I'm like, OK, if I'm a person who sees myself as somebody who speaks up in the face of injustice, then how do I act that's in accordance with my own stated belief or aspiration for myself. And if, and if I, if I'm not acting in concert with those stated beliefs about who I am or want to be, how do I change that and become more in line with my actions and my, you know, behaviors? Like, how do you walk, you know, how do you talk, you know, how do you walk the talk? That's how, that's one of the phrases we say, you got to walk the walk and talk, you got to walk the talk. So you can't just talk about believing in human rights. You have to actually you know, do it. And sometimes doing it is difficult and it's yeah. awkward. And it's, and sometimes you do um, take risks and sometimes there is a potential for fraying relationships and, 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 and stuff. And you all, but you have to think about, I think I don't tell people and never tell people what to do in given situations. That's not fair because context is so important. Context is key. And all conversations on consent happen within their unique context. There's no cookie-cutter answer, as Jackson says. So, it is up to everyone to reflect on the specific circumstances, the right timing, the power dynamics of those who are part of the encounters in which they have conversations on consent, and to use these parameters in order to shape the conversation. It's up to us to take a stance. Our stated beliefs need to be aligned with our actions. It's really about walking the talk. Many people talk about what they believe in, but when it comes to hard conversations, they don't act on those beliefs and avoid those conversations. What is important when it comes to conversations on consent is that these conversations themselves also have to be negotiated with the other person. Especially when it comes to tough conversations, people should ideally agree on a time and on a framing of when to enter this sometimes difficult space together. They may not agree on certain points, may be calling out controlling behavior that leads to sexual violence and yet also saviouring the relationship. Calling things out and cancelling people are two different aspects and do not necessarily always have to be mixed. Again, it is all contextual. People have to make judgments for themselves about 
How do you take a strong stand here? If you want to maintain this relationship, how can you do it in such a way that you make it clear that you're not okay with the behavior, but you're not, you're not severing the relationship to do it. There's different ways that people think about that. You can't just, there's no cookie cutter answer, but I do think it's important to help people think through these ethical decision-making steps. And I think in, when it comes to men, when it comes to white people and racism, when it comes to hetero uh, normative people and heterosexism, I, I think we need space to think this through and to hear from others and not just, and as we say in my, you know, my work and my program, the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program, you don't just learn from the front of the room. In other words, the trainers or the, you know, or the professional educators, you're learning from all around you. You're hearing people, in other words, when you create space for dialogue with young people or older people, you're creating space for people to talk, to talk and have honest conversations like you're doing with your podcast in a way that, for example, young guys often have never talked about any of this subject matter with their peers, with their male peers. It's like, on one level, you could say it's shocking that they wouldn't talk about something as obviously important as this, but a lot of young guys don't talk about it. And so when you create a situation as an educator or as you know, in an educational institution where it's not optional, we're not asking people to come to a talk or something. We're saying this is part of being an educated, responsible member of the community. You don't have an option. You're part of it. And you'll, you'll hear guys, they might come into the room with their arms folded. Oh, you know, what's this going to be? Another bash, you know, male bashing session where we're going to be told how bad we are. This is all embarrassingly predictable defensive reaction. But if you can get people coming through the door and now they're in the conversation, they're hearing stuff. Oh, my God, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, my God, I hadn't thought about the direct relationship between men's violence against women and men's violence against other men. I mean, men's, men's violence against other men is a huge problem, and, and se including sexual violence, but bullying and other forms of abuse. When, when men can start, when they get through that door, if they, if they get through that door, the, the, the possibility of sort of transformative, you know, sort of moments and educational experiences is heightened dramatically, but you've got to get them through the door. You gotta get them through the door. Harry Jackson makes an important distinction between the interpersonal realm of conversations on consent and the societal realm when it comes to having conversations on consent. On an interpersonal level, he says, these conversations are very contextual. The way these conversations unfold have to be understood as tailored for specific situations in order to be successful. It is important to communicate on the relational level that certain behaviors will not be tolerated in a peer group. Now, when it comes to the societal level, there should not be a choice. At schools, consent education needs to become part of the curriculum to educate ethical citizens who understand consent and violence and the way we expect members of society to behave without entitlement but through solidarity and aspiring leadership. More on consent education can be listened to in episode 2 with Sarah Casper. A consent culture creates the space for all members of society to be free and make their own autonomous decisions. Jackson says that this conversation needs to be had everywhere and on all levels including with older men. And we agree, many men have never had this conversation within their peer groups, so it needs to be up to society to create these spaces to have conversations on consent. 
This podcast is one of these spaces, so we encourage you to share, to like, and to also listen to all the other episodes. Take action now and invite your peers as well as decision makers in your community to join the conversation and to hopefully combat violence against women and men for a consent-based culture. And the way to get them through the door is to make it clear in communities, in, in, in schools, and in other in workplaces that this isn't just about individual behavior. This is about group values and how we're going to transmit them and educate around them. That takes enormous amount of pressure off individuals. And one last thing, I know I'm saying a whole lot, okay, but women obviously themselves are in the category of bystander, if the bystander is, an, is just a synonym, which it is, for friend, teammate, classmate, colleague, coworker, family member, then women are also bystanders. And, and women and, and people outside the binary of men and women. So I am talking, I've been talking mostly about men, but everybody has a role to play in challenging and interrupting abuse, in supporting victims and targets of abuse and survivors of abuse before, during, or after the fact. Um, everybody has a role to play. People who have formal responsibilities of leadership have even more responsibility to address these issues proactively, not just reactively after there's an incident. Um, but everybody has a role to play because, you know, and the, the, the last point is that the bystander who speaks up, the person who's the friend or the colleague who says, and that's not cool, or can you talk about something else? Because I don't appreciate jokes that are racist. I don't appreciate comments, sexist comments. That person who speaks up is actually a leader. That's what a leader does. They, they might not have a leadership uh, designation. They might not be credentialed in a formal sense as a leader, but the act of saying, hey, that's not funny. You know, a 15 year old boy who turns to his friend who just told a rape joke and says, dude, that's not funny, man. Can you joke about something else? I mean, maybe the 15 year old's mother's a rape survivor. Maybe his maybe he knows how big a problem rape is in the world. And he's not he's not cool with joking about it. But his act of saying, can you joke about something else to his friend is a leadership act. He's executed a leadership protocol. He's basically identified a problem, which is the normalization and joking about something that should not be normalized and joked about. He's, he's, he's thought about his responsibilities to various parties, maybe not consciously, but he's thought about his responsibility to the various parties involved, including to his friend. What's his responsibility to his friend to make it clear that his friend is doing something that's not cool. Um, and then he's thought about what, okay, what are my options? What can I do about this? And he's picked an option, which is to say something and he's done it, which is a, what does a leader do? This is exactly what leaders do. They identify problems. They think about their responsibilities to the various parties. They think about their options, and then they do one. So the point is, if you frame it as a leadership act at all levels, you're framing it positively and aspirationally, which is a better way of getting people to act than, as I've said, telling them they better not do something bad. Um I mean, Which everything that you're saying community. right now is making me think of a Professor James Gilligan who wrote a book called Preventing Violence, which I love. And in this book, there's one part where he, he says, um, there's no point building more hospitals if your water system is poisoned, right? And it almost feels like we are sometimes caught in the reactiveness of another survivor. Let's have these, you know, more support, but we're at the tail end of the problem and that's reactive. It's not preventive. And I think that everything that you're talking about is precisely about fixing the water system. It's about being able to societally make changes 
where yes, I think indeed, and and I think placing also responsibility on both men and women is is an interesting concept because, you know, one of the conversations that I hear often now is men being afraid to approach women. Where's the line? Am I allowed to, you know, have a pickup line with a woman in the workplace? Is it acceptable? Is it not? And ironically, there'll be women who say, yeah, if you say, I look very good today, that's fine. There'll be other women who say, absolutely not fine. And so there is that. And then there'll be women that don't actually know. And so by doing this, then we're also creating part of the problem because we don't know our own line sometimes. It's very hard to actually determine like, what is my boundary? What do I want? What do I know? And then coming out and saying it and actively standing by it is difficult. And then we get lost in this shades of gray consent areas, which are also very confusing for all the genders. So, so how can we, you know, be more constructive in defining these boundaries and, and also encouraging each other that, you know, there's margin for error because obviously every person is different and there has to be a margin for error. Maybe somebody says something and the other person doesn't respond well and you can take a step back. But if there's not margin for error, we simply create a massive gap of communication where nobody dares approach anyone else. How do we navigate this? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very, that's very well said. I mean, I think just one clarification of what I said, I wouldn't equate the responsibility of women and men around sexual violence because I yes. think men have way more responsibility. Yes. It's, it's like, but that doesn't break, but that doesn't mean that women don't have a role to play. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the line you have to walk. I mean, it's like, it's, like it's you don't a delicate do, line. <laughs> it is a delicate line. And, and, and that's part of why education and dialogue around these subject matter is so critically important in the absence of, by the way, explicit education. In other words, talking about this openly and honestly, I mean, people, people resort to like, what learning from what? And, you know, I have to say, I think it's important to say in the context of the conversation about sexual violence, the porn culture is incredibly influential in shaping the norms in our societies and, and heterosexual boys are growing up from the earliest, you know, days of their sort of pubescence where they're sexually charged and turned on who, who go to say porn because of curiosity and excitement, but what they get there is not sexual um, representation or narrative or no, bodies having definitely sex. Definitely not. Or, uh, <laughs> what's that? Definitely not. <laughs> right, right. What they're getting is men doing something to women. I'm talking about heterosexual porn and, and, some, and often degrading them verbally while they're having sex with them. It's not about reciprocal human sexual pleasure, women's sexual pleasure is almost a complete afterthought if it's even there at all in heterosexual porn marketed to millions and billions of young men and men all around the world. And so, so the, in the absence of having honest conversations like this, I mean, what does consent mean in porn? I mean, if, to, I'll just make, I'll just make a general statement here. There's no, there's, there's not, it's like if a woman says no, either she doesn't mean it or you can yeah. ignore it. Yeah. And, and, and if she doesn't, she or she means yes. Or she means right. yes, right? Right, exactly. What does consent mean in porn? Porn is an important aspect that affects so many people when they try having conversations on consent because there are so many unconscious scripts running in their heads. In the absence of the spaces that Jackson advocates for, spaces in which we can talk about and experience consensual encounters, including consensual sex, People, and mostly men, go to places where they get educated about sex, and often this is through porn. 
in the absence of conversations on consent in peer groups and in society the only spaces available are porn platforms to learn ways sex works and this education is not focused on consent the porn industry is targeting mainly young men and gives them a grim view on their sexual partners and their relationship to them as jackson says if a woman says no in porn either she does not mean it or you can ignore it that is the female trope the purity culture feeds us there are only two choices the holy woman who does not know about sex and needs to be convinced or coerced which is clearly unconsensual more about coercion in episode 1 with Johanna Nellis from the Council of Europe and there is the whore who does not need to be asked because she's available to anyone all the time and has no agency or wishes in regards to her own sexuality the porn industry is therefore contributing towards dominant and violent behavior towards women how can this be changed you might already get the answer we need conversations on consent and we need to experience consent especially consensual sex as oxford professor jonathan herring mentioned in our fourth episode on deceit we need to reframe what a successful sexual encounter is if it is not consensual and obtained through deceit or coercion we cannot speak of a success on the contrary we speak about a grave violation sadness and deep grief think about the sexual scripts that are running in in millions and billions of men and young men's heads when they're engaging with women in the real world and the 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 in the absence of having honest thoughtful discussion and dialogue both with other men with women honest discussions about sexuality that that script running in their head from the porn culture and some you know and other forms of media that are informed by the porn culture becomes incredibly influential and let me just also say because i know that there are people who are in your sort of sphere this is an anti sex i'm not saying anything at all anti sex and in fact i think it's i think the porn industry is anti sex i think i think that enshrining this idea of male dominance through sexual aggression towards women is anti sex i think really if you're really pro sex you're pro sexual pleasure and mutual and reciprocal sexual pleasure you're not going to endorse the 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 incredibly reductive and abusive and misogynist form of se- sexuality that's being enshrined in porn culture but the problem is people feel like if I, if they say anything critical of the porn industry somehow they're approved they're anti-sex they're 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 not approving of sexual expression this is all bs but it has the very powerful effect of stifling people having thoughtful conversations and yeah. and again one corrective and i'm not saying this is going to be adequate but one corrective to the porn industry and it's an it's a capitalist industry uh having um kind of monopoly power on the sexual scripts that young men uh are following especially young men not exclusively um is the public sector has to provide a counterbalance of thoughtful informed factual based education to counteract what the private industry of the porn culture is enshrining as normative sexual practice and and it is this is one piece i'm not saying it's the only piece of what has to happen yeah. um but it, but that has to be part of the conversation i think absolutely and especially when we have this kind of upbringing and background and and sometimes it's you know intergenerational where it's you know not just a child or, or a young man that's watching porn but it's 
circles where he knows that their parents did at some point or his dad did at some point and it, it trickles down through the generations how do we go when we have that from not blaming and say oh you're doing this wrong to constructive conversations that actually make people question their choices and think that maybe there are different ways of doing things Great question. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I would say I would say because there's so much. I mean, there's so many different things that have to change. But I would say one flat out one is if you're representing sexual uh, engagement and it's not reciprocal and women's pleasure in the heterosexual context is not seen as important, then it's abusive. Then it's it's wrong. It's reinforcing dominance in a way that is is antithetical to universal human rights values. And if you're doing it and you're getting pleasure from it, you need to check yourself. You need to say, you know, I'm, I'm out of step. If I can't say I believe in human rights and justice and fairness, if I'm continuing to, um, you know, get, you know, participate in and support, uh, but whether it's an, an industry or a way of, of, of being that is contrary to, to my own stated values. And as I said earlier, I think we need to figure out ways of aligning our behaviors with our stated values or that what we aspire to. And I mean, I think I think this is fundamental. I mean, again, I, I think a lot of a lot of young women, and not just young women. I say keep saying that, but I mean, a lot of young women and and somewhat older have grown up in culture in a culture where their their sexual pleasure is not even considered. Like it's not even a lot of, a lot of women. When you ask them, and I've, I've I've been in this space for a long time as an educator, you know, and working with educators who are explicitly, you know, who are sex educators, if you will, more more specifically, because I mean, I deal with violence more more than you know sex education in a general sense, um, they'll say, you know, when you ask, when you ask some, young, some of these groups of young women, this cuts across class, race, ethnicity. What, you know, what do you expect when you have sexual relations with a boy or a young man or a man? What kind of pleasure do you expect? A lot of them are looking like they look with a blank stare <laughs> because it's like, it hasn't even occurred to them that that's something that they should be thinking about. Female pleasure. This is one of the main taboos in society leading to this important aspect that makes the sexual encounter consensual being ignored. When women understand their own pleasure and are confident to make it an important attribute in sexual relations and when men are curious about female pleasure, we see a very different conversation taking place. Female pleasure women masturbating or erogenous zones of women are so often not even a topic at all and yet female pleasure should be an important marker of successful sexual encounters. The current narrative however is all about penis size, about the length of sexual encounters and revolving around degrading sexual practices that are taught in porn such as ejaculating in women's faces, strangling them, or similar practices which are violent. Choking women during sex is proven to be one of the major red flags in abusive relationships, and statistics show that femicides correlate with behaviors of strangulation during sexual practices, for instance, also often shown in porn. There are myths about the female anatomy as well and where and how women can experience orgasm. Much of sex education is revolving around the penis, but intercourse is not how the vast majority of women experience orgasm at all. Once we can destigmatize women's bodies, women's existence and pleasure, we will automatically have much more open, 
honest and joyful conversations on consent. By the way, that's directly contrary to the to the the supposed values of the of the feminist and sexual revolutions of the of the 60s and 70s and 80s which were talking about reclaiming women's sense of themselves as sexual agents who are entitled to sexual uh, respect and pleasure it's completely contrary to those values what we have today and yeah. yet and yet a lot of people don't talk about this because it's so awkward and so uncomfortable and a lot of women who are heterosexual are very very wary of you know, taking off men and getting men angry at them and, and having men then retreat from them. And it's, it's, it's kind of a mess, to be honest with you. Around the world, there are so wildly variable rates of societies coming to terms with things like gender equality and sexual equality and, you know, LGBTQ revolutions, as well as women's place, if you will, women's place. I mean, you know, gender equality questions. And so it, it isn't, It, it wouldn't be fair to to for me or any of us really to you know to make universalizing comments about certain kinds of cultural practices but i would say that what's what's been happening over the last um well since the digital revolution is that is that everybody who has access to digital technology and the internet has access to you know conversations that their culture might not be allowing or accepting but yet the technology is enabling them to have access to counter narratives that challenge their culture and so i think that's one of the things that we're going to be seeing increasingly over the next century certainly we're already seeing it but the next century is how these more traditional belief systems and cultures are are going to be increasingly in tension with the technologies that have allowed their citizenry and the people of their society and the young people coming up to access a whole different worlds of ideology, belief, including sexual and gender sort of ideology and belief that will challenge some of those traditional established orders. And that the way some of those societies, including, you know, the United States has, a, I have, we have our own issues on this. I'm not saying this is other societies exclusive and, and exclusively. Um, One way to deal with that is the authoritarian way, which is to crush it. It's somehow limit access to information, limit access to alternative ways of thinking and being. But that's honestly, it's a failing strategy. It's not possible. It's only possible in a short-term sense. It's not possible to put the genie back in the bottle. So the question for me is, and it relates to your last you know, question, really, your, your capstone question, is... Um, is how do we change with the times? In other words, we're humans. We're, 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 we're sort of biologically programmed to be adaptive or we, or we fail. I mean, the, the human experiment will fail if we don't adapt and evolve to new times. And I mean, climate change and the environmental stuff is a giant example of we're not adapting to the realities of our environment and therefore we're on a collision course with species suicide because we're not making the right decisions politically. We have the scientific knowledge. We just haven't made, you know, we haven't had the, you know, the buy-in at the level of institutional decision-making that we need to. But, but I would say in going forward, you know, everybody has to think about what role they want to play in adapting to the changing times in terms of aligning their behavior with their stated values. And if they say, for example, if young men say, or older men say, I care about fairness and justice and democracy and universal human rights and those basic values, 
How can I then enact them in my daily life, in my interactions with others? How can I treat people with respect and dignity? How can I treat women with the same respect and dignity that I treat men? How can I do that interpersonally? If I'm heterosexual, how can I do it sexually? Um, how can I learn from women? In other words, I think a lot of men will ask, well, I, uh, let me just say, a lot of people ask me, they'll say, what can men do? If they're really concerned about these issues, what can men do? And one of the things I say is first, the first thing is, well, you can do a whole lot, but I, I would say, you don't have to start from scratch. It's like, you don't have to start, like, try to figure out what do I do? It's like, look at books around me. I mean, there's a, tons of people have been writ, writing books and articles and websites and TED Talks and educators. And there's, uh, there's a ton of things you can learn as a man or as a young man from other men and women and others who have been thinking through this subject matter, in some cases for decades, in a multiracial, multiethnic sense and thinking about cultural specificity, specificity and global north versus global south. In other words, you don't have to start from scratch educate yourself, go, go on YouTube, watch videos, you know, listen to women, read stuff that women have been writing about sexual violence and, and relationship abuse and, 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 and teaching about it and giving lectures about it. And I mean, for decades, this is not a new subject matter. And then look at the men who have been thinking about what those women have been teaching and, and ad, advocating for and how those men, you know, I'm, I'm one of them, obviously, but you know, what have we learned from women? What have we then applied to our understanding about men and men's lives in a complicated way. You know, not all men are straight, heterosexual, white men. You know, there's a whole spectrum of men. What are the men who you most identify with? You know, what are they saying about this? And then figure out once you've done some download of information and, and, and connected with other people who are thinking through these questions, then you have to make a decision. Okay, wh at what level do I want to engage with this? And, 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 and do I want to just be a better person as, a, as an individual? which is a good thing, and the way that I treat others in my sphere? Or do I want to go one step further? Do I want to get involved? Do I want to you know, support organizations? Do I want to get and find and connect with other individuals who care about the same things that I care about? And I think one piece of advice that I think is, is a pretty sound piece of advice to, to guys in general is check in with women in your community, in your, in your friendship network, who, who are particularly engaged with this subject matter, and ask them. Say, what do you know is going on in our community about these issues? I think this is really interesting and important. What do you know about what's going on? Is there any opportunities for men to get involved? There are, are there talks that I can go to? Are there groups? Are there chat? You know, are there online you know communities that are that that talk about this kind of stuff? And you you, know, you might check out that TED talk. But you know, be bold. I would say be bold. You know, you, you like like take some steps. You don't have to start from scratch. That's it. Jackson makes another important point. The information is out there. The real question is, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to face yourself? Are you willing to face your past? How do you want to deal with what you see from a new perspective on equality, justice and democracy? And what does that mean for you? This is a point where still too many men fail. They proclaim their beliefs and values of equality, yet they do not question themselves. They cannot move beyond the basic threshold to really start questioning their own role in society honestly. We need men to listen and learn. This podcast is our contribution to that. Our team is diverse, including different genders, age groups, faith groups and continents. They are all present with one goal, 
Many of us have experienced sexual violence and we want to see a change in society through education. And for those people who do not want to listen and learn, there have to be laws that protect people from violence. So we urge all of you, sign our petition with the aim of enshrining consent into law to make prosecutions easier. Unless men question their own complicity with violence against women, while maybe holding a great post in an international institution or being proclaimed artists or activists, nothing will really fundamentally change. It gets easier. It's a, it doesn't mean that everybody has to be, you know, emerge as this total social activist, you know, in every sphere. But you take that first step and be open to, to new experience and be open to the idea that um, you could be part of something pretty important, very important. In fact, gigantically important. And you could be, you know, it could be fulfilling both on a personal level, but also, you know, beyond that. Because um, we're not talking about asking men to be, in my opinion, we're not asking men to be, you know, wearing, you know, uh, sackcloth and ashes and, you know, and, and covering our, you know, it being all negative and, and you know, and self, you know, uh, negating. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's ways to be, you know, a constructive part of social change and and have a great, you know, life. It's not one or the other. And in fact, those of us who are engaged, I would say, in, in the struggle for, for human rights and social justice, um, that, you know, many of us have enhanced lives and, and, and relationships and a sense of purpose and a sense of, of connection to bigger, you know, and more important, you know, things. And in a way that's enhancing. So I would say it's it's not it's not all about sacrifice. It's it's also about you know fulfillment of being part of something that's really important. And and and, and the last thing I would say is there's an awful lot of suffering in the world. There's an awful lot of unnecessary suffering in the world, and a lot of it is inflicted by men against women and other men and themselves that are that is related to old, tired, and discredited ideas and ideologies about manhood. The very old and damaging ideas of manhood that still prevail are causing an enormous amount of suffering for men and for women and the non-binary alike. It is time to redefine manhood as something aspirational and as controlling and coercing others but including consent and compassion. In order to dig deeper into these topics, we want to encourage you to listen to our episode number four on deception with Jonathan Herring, criminal lawyer from Oxford University, and our episode number one on coercion that we recorded with Johanna Nellis, head of violence against women division of the Council of Europe, who drafted the Istanbul Convention Against Violence Against Women that inspired us to start this campaign based on Article 36 of the Istanbul Convention. This article states that any form of sex that is not consensual is classified as rape. Conversations can be messy and difficult, but a clear definition of consent will help us to take action where human rights violations are being committed. Those of us who are, you know, thoughtful about this and, and who happen to be men or embodied males, if you will, or men in our identification or our, you know, who we are or see ourselves, we have an incredibly important role to play in helping to expand cultural ideologies and beliefs about manhood that are less destructive than the old ways. And that we, ha we have enough knowledge in the 21st century, accumulated human wisdom and from women, from men, from others to do it better 
and to be more life affirming. And I think I think we can prevent an enormous amount of unnecessary suffering if we those of us who are men, if, if enough of us get involved and, and, and take that first step. And so that's what I would say. Try to be encouraging, positive and um, and, and in solidarity. Thank you so much, Jackson, for that final sentiment and also for all of the work that you've been doing for so long. <laughs> you've really been very inspiring to many, many people and you have, you know, you're fighting an amazing fight, you're being an active voice and I think it's definitely having an impact on change. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for your leadership and activism and all your colleagues and thanks for inviting me to be part of your, uh, your project. I really um, appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. And to all of our listeners, please do join the Consent Revolution and sign our petition to put the definition of consent into the law. And thank you for having joined us in this first series season of Conversations on Consent. It has been wonderful to speak to all of our guests and wonderful to have you as an audience. And we look forward to speaking to you perhaps in a new season later on. I'm your host, Elisa Yanacone, and it's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much for being a part of the Consent Revolution together with all of us. We are incredibly honored to have had Jackson Cat speak about solidarity and consent in our 10th episode of the first series of Conversations on Consent. This campaign was produced with the financial support of the European Union, with a framework of the European Union Civil June program, and supported by Filia and the Filia Project Association. A special thank you goes to Emre and to Orhun. To dive deeper into the topic of consent, please listen to our other podcast episodes, sign our petition to make sure that the definition of consent is written into the law, and have a look at our online resources that were put together by our amazing research team. And now, please listen to our team members and what consent means to them. Hi, this is Tahia, a South African national based between South Africa and Turkey. Consent is so much more than yes means yes or no means no. We need to have conversations on consent to understand our bodily autonomy and that of others. Every woman or man at some point in their life has been confronted with a moral gray area regarding their bodily autonomy and the rights attached to that. Conversations on consent allows us to open up that discussion and talk about consent in a way that is not only protecting of both people but also creates a dialogue within society. This is Nico, a German citizen based in Berlin, Germany. We need conversations on consent in our relationships, workplaces, peer groups and society in order to understand what other people want and need and what they don't want and so we can co-create a space of mutual interest. Consent for me describes an attitude, setting an intention to come from a place of curiosity and care about the other person. I believe consent is more than a buzzword or a keyword, but a practice you can bring into your daily life. In the end, it will improve human relationships. This is Hande, a Turkish national based in Turkey. The more we talk, the more we learn. And once we learn, we can respect one another and have a better life. As someone who has been abused, manipulated and violated in the past, I see now that a forced yes is not consent. In Turkey, approaches to consent differ around the country, but progress motivates me. 
I believe this campaign is a good starting point to educate international youth so we can be better people. This is Alexandra, a German national based in Germany. I am a rape survivor and have experienced several shapes and forms of sexual violence. It is very simple. We need conversations on consent to prevent sexual violence and to create a consent culture instead of maintaining a rape culture. Consent needs to be fully covered within the law globally to criminalize non-consensual sexual acts. My name is Eneida Suleimani, an Albanian from North Macedonia. While the legal definition of consent may vary by location and circumstance, the general concept is always the same. Consent is an ongoing process of discussing boundaries, what people are comfortable with. Consent is an agreement between participants to engage in sexual activity. Consent should be clearly and freely communicated. A verbal and affirmative expression of consent can help both partners to understand and respect each other's boundaries. Consent is an agreement between participants to engage in sexual activity. Consent should be clearly and freely communicated. A verbal and affirmative expression of consent can help both of partners to understand and respect each other's boundaries. This is Huang, a Vietnamese national based in Vietnam. Although consent affects daily life, not everyone understands or practices it. Consent means respecting my own boundaries and that of others. That it's okay to say no and for others to do so too. I strongly believe in this campaign's goal to make consent mainstream and mandatory. And only by doing so can we create a safer world for everyone. This is Edil, a Turkish national based in Turkey. Consent is a huge topic that is largely misunderstood. I don't think most people know how to seek it or practice it. I think we need to talk about it more to understand its complexities and apply it to our daily lives. I didn't know what consent meant. I gave up so many things because I felt that if I said no, the other person wouldn't accept it or society would judge me. When I found my voice, I wanted to reach out to as many people as possible to make sure everything is their own decision. This is Julia, a German national based in Germany. Mutual consent that has to be asked again and again is not long term and therefore has to be asked, felt and assessed again and again. A one-off consent has no right to a repetition or continuation, but refers solely to the action that is asked for and failed at the moment. Past consent doesn't equal future consent. I'm Maria, a Pakistani national based in Hong Kong. I believe consent to be of supreme pertinence in personal as well as social and organizational relationships. To me, consent is not a monochromatic yes or no. Sometimes a yes is not a yes, it is a no, disguised in a yes to avert the fear of untoward consequences. I believe consent not being freely given is not being given at all. It is never okay to persuade someone to do something that they are not willing to do in the first place. 
I feel talking about the essence of consent and relaying this through the written word is a potentially effective means of assuring social change. This is Natalia, Polish national living in Iceland. Um, consent to me means a verbal or non-verbal permission, an agreement between two people to consciously participate in a certain act. It should be clearly communicated in a way that is obvious and without any doubt understood by the other person. Because asking for consent and giving it is a sign of a mutual respect. A Pakistani national based in Pakistan, sexual violence is very pervasive and difficult to talk about. When people are more aware and well informed, they make better decisions. And that is a step towards preventing abuse. Consent is the ability to have agency and make decisions as long as all the information is available to that person. I am passionate about the topic and want to raise awareness, especially with regards to this happening in the digital realm. Technology is enabling more violence and will continue to unless we tackle it. This is Nicole, a German national based in Turkey. Consent means mutual respect for each party that they themselves own their space for self-determination and award this space mutually to one another.